I'd like to have us turn to our text uh, for this morning, which is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and that's on page 838 if you're using the Bibles and the pews. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. We're in our sermon series uh, this summer looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're actually going to skip around a little bit um, uh, the next couple of weeks. We're in chapter 7 this week. We'll go back to chapter 6 next week. We'll be doing a little bit bit of that uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, But for this morning, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And this is what Luke writes. Uh, This is, by the way, following right after his uh, version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So he starts by saying, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the Jewish elders to him to ask him if he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, this man deserves to have you do this, for he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why why I did not consider myself worthy even to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell one of them, go, and he goes. And to another one, I say, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, uh, back in high school I worked uh, uh, in the maintenance department of a local Christian retirement home near where I grew up. I was 16, had hair down on my shoulders, and had just bought my first car. In fact, that was the reason why I needed a job in the first place, uh, to pay for the car. It actually became a bit of a catch-22. That's because by the time I was done paying for the car each month, there was hardly anything left in my paycheck. So I had the car to get to the job, and I had the job to pay for the car. And I remember thinking at one point, why am I doing this? Um, I got this car so I could get a job, but all the money I make goes straight into the car. Uh, The first raise I got helped fix that, Um, but for at least the first couple of months, uh, it seemed like the job and the car only existed for each other. Anyway, my supervisor at the retirement home was a 60-something named Larry, and Larry, to put it bluntly, was kind of a crank. Uh, His only mood seemed to be grouchiness. Monday or Friday, rain or shine, summer or winter, didn't matter. Whatever the situation, nothing changed Larry's mood. Larry never laughed. Larry never cried. Larry never even so much as cracked a smile. Larry was just Larry. And if you got so much as an eyebrow raised from him, you knew that you'd really made an impression. You didn't know what that impression was or what it meant, but you'd at least made an impression. Well, in a similar way, we actually don't see all that much emotion from Jesus in the Gospels either. That's not to say that he didn't show emotion. It just means that the Gospel writers didn't often record him showing emotion. Uh, Certainly, he wasn't a crank or a grouch the way that my supervisor Larry was. But apart from some famous weeping in John chapter 11 and a few other isolated incidents here and there throughout the Gospels, the Gospel writers don't record 
very much emotion from Jesus. We don't see him laughing, crying, or reacting to things very much. And so when the gospel writers do record some sort of reaction or emotion from Jesus, it's worth taking note of. And this passage is one such example. That's because Luke does record some emotion from Jesus here. Faced with the request for a miracle in this text, we see something from Jesus that we just don't often see in the Gospels. We see amazement. Jesus often amazed others, but he himself is not often depicted as being amazed, and yet he is here. And the person who amazes Jesus is actually a pretty unlikely source, because Jesus is amazed here by a stranger, an outsider, someone you wouldn't expect. He's amazed here by a Roman centurion and the deep, trusting faith that he has in Jesus. Now, for those of us not overly familiar with Roman military history or structure, a centurion was a mid-level military officer, roughly equivalent to a U.S. Army captain today. Uh, Centurions usually commanded around 80 uh, soldiers in a Roman military unit called a centuria, and by this point in Roman history, those centurias were often uh, stationed at garrisons in far-flung parts of the Roman Empire. Uh, Their role, by and large, was that of peacekeepers. They were there on the ground in areas that were difficult for Rome to govern, either because of the far distance away from Rome itself or because the local population didn't like Roman rule. They were there to keep the peace. Palestine actually posed both of those problems to Rome. First, it was far away. It was on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea from the city of Rome itself. And second, the mainly Jewish people, uh, mainly Jewish population there loathed the Romans. They couldn't stand them and their control over them. And so over the years, Rome had established a number of garrisons throughout Palestine in order to keep the peace. That, however only made the Jewish people dislike them all the more. And yet the Jews didn't uh, dislike the Romans just because they had invaded and conquered them. That was one reason why they didn't like them. Uh, The main reason why they loathed the Romans, though, was the same reason that they actually loathed everyone else. They disliked the Romans, and everyone else for that matter, simply because they weren't Jews. Now, that actually would have been pretty common back then. That probably strikes us as, as harsh today, right? Disliking people, people simply because they're not your kind. But there are two things that we need to keep in mind about that. First, most people in the ancient world were like that. They disliked other people groups who weren't part of their group. That's because societies were tribal back in those days. That's how people practiced, celebrated, and preserved their culture, their language, their distinctive qualities. Um, Contrary to our world today, which is much more individualistic and where the the community matters a lot less, back then, the most important thing, the, the most valuable thing for a group of people was the collective, their community, their shared heritage and culture and togetherness. And so preserving the tribe mattered more than anything else. And one of the best ways that you could do that was to make sure that no one else, no outsiders, no foreigners, ever got in. And so that's what the Jewish people often did. In order to preserve their tribe, their culture, their community, they kept to themselves and they kept others out. And they were by no means an exception with that, by the way. The truth is that pretty much everyone did that back then. 
And so that's one reason why the Jewish people disliked the Romans. Like others in their day, they disliked them simply because they weren't them. And so they didn't want them there in their land. There was another reason, though, why the Jews disliked the Romans, and this one is a bit more unique, a bit more distinctive, a bit more specific to the Jewish people themselves. Part of the reason why Jewish people disliked others, including the Romans, was because, according to their faith, they believed that God had told them that they needed to. Now, I'll say right off the bat that this is actually a distortion of, of Jewish Old Testament teaching, but God repeatedly, throughout the Old Testament, tells his people that they need to be religiously pure. They were living in the midst of a bunch of pagan, non-believing nations, and so God repeatedly tells them in the Old Testament that they need to be different. They need to be a different kind of people. What he doesn't tell them, though, is that they need to exclude or avoid or disdain those pagan people who lived around them. And yet over the years, the Jewish people had sort of warped and distorted that idea into thinking that that is what God had said. God had told them not to be like the pagan nations that surrounded them. Slowly but surely, though, they had come to believe that God had told them to have nothing to do with those other nations. And even though that's not true, that's the second reason why the Jewish people disliked the Romans. They disliked them and everyone else for that matter because they thought mistakenly that God had told them to. It's in that context then that this Roman centurion is living and serving. Stationed at a Roman garrison in the Galilean town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, this Gentile, non-Jewish, middle army officer is there with his centuria to enforce and keep the famous peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And that sort of situation certainly could have created contempt, right, between a centurion like this and the locals that he served. After all, like we just talked about, the Jewish people were sort of famous for their inhospitality towards foreigners. And there very well could have been contempt on the, Rome, on the centurion side, too. After all, he likely had an estate, a family, maybe a business back home in Italy that he had left behind to come here and command this garrison in, in Palestine. And so it, there's no guarantee that he even wanted to be there in the first place. And so it would have been very easy for him to look down on and resent, and resent the Jewish people that he had been put in charge of. And yet that's not what we see. There very easily could have been this mutual hostility between the Jewish people in Capernaum and this centurion from Rome. And yet instead of that, as N.T. Wright points out, what we actually see in this passage is mutual appreciation between them. Wright says, often soldiers in that position would despise the local people as an inferior race, but this man didn't. He had come to love and respect the Jewish people and had even paid for the building of the local synagogue. Luke presents him to us as a humble Gentile, an outsider, a non-Jew, looking in at Israel and Israel's God from the outside, liking what he sees and opening himself to learning new truth from this strange ancient way of life. And one thing that this centurion had noticed, one thing that he liked, one thing that he wanted to learn more about was this surprising new miracle worker named Jesus. Like we said, Luke uh, locates this story right after Jesus finishes giving his famous Sermon on the Mount. The main place that you can actually find that sermon is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, but Luke records his own shorter version of it just before this in the second half of Luke chapter 6. And Luke writes that after finishing his sermon, Jesus goes to Capernaum. 
Upon entering the town, he's met by a delegation of the town's elders, but unlike other similar situations, where the elders show up to question Jesus, to kind of vet him, and then potentially to actually kick him out of the town, here instead, they come to him asking for his help, asking him to do something on their behalf, asking him to do a favor for this kind-hearted centurion who's done so much for them. One of the centurion's servants, one he values and cares about deeply, is sick. The situation is serious, and he's on his deathbed. And so this centurion, who against all odds has managed to endear himself to this local Jewish population, asks if the town's elders will go to Jesus and see if he might come and heal his servant. Now we need to pause here, because that actually would have created a a bit of a minor controversy. Uh, the fact of the matter is that, that uh, while Jewish people um, were not told in the Old Testament uh, to completely exclude foreigners and have nothing to do with them, there were still codes of conduct that governed how the Jewish people were supposed to interact with others. Again, the religious purity in their relationship with God was important. And so there are a number of, of things in Scripture that detail how Jewish people are supposed to interact with non-Jewish people. Uh, for instance, they couldn't work alongside non-Jewish people, they couldn't sit down to a meal together with non-Jewish people, and they also couldn't enter their homes. And yet that last one, that's precisely what this centurion has just asked Jesus to do. He's asked him to come to his home, come to his house, and come inside to heal this servant. In other words, just by making this request of Jesus, this centurion has stirred up a bit of an issue for him. And yet Jesus goes. He throws caution to the wind. He sets out with these Jewish elders and heads to the centurion's house, fully ready to enter it, ready to defile himself, ready to transgress all the racial and ethnic barriers that should have stopped him. And yet while he's on his way, the centurion realizes his mistake. And so he sends a second delegation to Jesus. This time it's a group of his friends They show up and they say to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. The centurion knows Jewish custom. He knows Jewish culture. He knows Jewish Jewish religion. And so he realizes that he shouldn't have asked Jesus to come. He shouldn't have asked him to come to his house. It's not okay. It's not appropriate. It will only get Jesus in trouble. And so in humble, deferential, respectful thoughtfulness, the centurion reverses course and tells Jesus not to come the rest of the way. And if that was all he said, if that was the only message that he had sent his friends to give to Jesus, if that was all he wanted them to tell him, that would have been amazing enough. But what he says next is even more amazing. That's because he has his friends say to Jesus, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. And this is where we get to see one of those rare moments where Jesus reacts, where he shows some emotion, where he actually shows surprise. Luke writes, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at the centurion and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. You see, this centurion recognizes something about Jesus. 
He recognizes that Jesus is more than just a teacher, more than just a miracle worker, more than just a healer. There are actually a lot of those kind of folks running around Palestine at this time. Jesus is far from the only miracle-working rabbi, actually. In fact, he was far from the only one named Jesus. We actually have accounts of others like him doing some of the same sorts of things, making the rounds from town to town, performing cheap tricks and minor miracles and gaining a following for their own glory and self-esteem. But this centurion sees something different, something that sets Jesus apart. He sees something more to him. He sees something, actually, that reminds him of himself. Like he says, he himself is a man under authority. People listen to him. They do what he says. He tells them to go, and they go. He tells them to come, and they come. He tells them to do something, and they do it. In other words, this centurion has power. He has control. People listen to him. And what he recognizes about Jesus is that Jesus is the same way. He has power. He has control. Others listen to him, too. The only difference is that it's not just people who listen to Jesus. They do. But sickness, disease, illness, demons, even death itself listens to him. That's the kind of power Jesus has. That's what he has control over. That's what listens to and responds to his authority. It's the kind of stuff that no one else has control over. And yet Jesus does. In other words, this centurion, this Gentile, non-Jewish, foreign outsider, he recognizes something about Jesus that even Jesus' own people, God's people, the Jewish people, don't recognize, at least not yet. That's because in, in Jesus, this centurion recognizes the power of God himself, active and at work. As Wright puts it in his commentary, for all his lack of appropriate religious background, the centurion had grasped the very center of the Jewish faith, that the one true God, the God of Israel, was the sovereign one, the Lord of heaven and earth, and he had grasped it in its shocking new form. This one true God was personally present and active in Jesus of Nazareth. That's what this centurion sees here. That's what he sees in Jesus. And that's what we need to see, too. That's what Luke wants us to understand as well. In fact, that's the whole reason why he's written this gospel, why, why he's put pen to paper. Because he wants us, like this centurion, to see that in Jesus, God is personally active and present among us. There's one more thing that Luke wants us to see, though, too. Not just that God is personally active and present among us, but that he's personally active and present within us as well. You see, Luke will eventually tell us about another centurion. This time it's in his second book, the book of Acts, chapter 10. There Luke tells us the story of Cornelius, another Roman centurion. Only this time things go a step further. It's because instead of simply recognizing the power of God in Jesus, which he does, Luke tells us that Cornelius and his, and his entire household were actually filled with that power. It's because in response to the good news of the gospel, the Holy Spirit descended on Cornelius and everyone in his house, filled them with his power, sanctified them, non-Jewish Gentiles though they were, so that they too could become part of God's covenant people 
and live as his servants. And that's what we celebrate this Pentecost Sunday morning. We celebrate that as believers in Jesus Christ, God not only demonstrates his power through Jesus, but has actually filled us with that power as well. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, Jesus is who the centurion in this passage thought he was. He is someone with power. He is someone who's in control, someone with authority. And like the centurion recognized, that power, control, and authority extend even to things that no one else has power or control over. Things like illness, sickness, disease, and death. It extended to a few more things too, like sin, evil, injustice, and even Satan himself. Like this centurion recognizes here, Jesus is Lord, King, ruler, and authority over it all. But part of what we believe as Christians is that he has not kept that power and authority to himself. Instead, he has filled us as his people with that very same power and authority. He used his power, his control, his authority over sickness, sin, and death to forgive, pardon, and make us his people again. And then on Pentecost, he went a step further. And he filled us with that power, that control, and that authority so that we, as his people, could continue his work in this world. That's who we are as Christian believers Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, God has sanctified, renewed, and transformed us as his people. And as such, we, like this centurion, recognize who Jesus is. We can respond to his authority with faith and trust, and we live as those under his authority, as his representatives and people in this world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, all the power and authority and control in the world is yours. You are Lord and ruler of all. And yet, God, part of the, part of the scandal of the gospel is that you have entrusted that power and authority to us. You have made yourself personal, personal in a way that can't even really imagine. And you have come to dwell and live within us to lead and guide us so we can serve you as your people and lead others to know you as well. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your Son, and thank you for making the power of the gospel apparent in each of our lives. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.